We are joined today by Diana Butu, lawyer, former advisor to negotiating team of the PLO, Palestinian citizen of Israel, fierce feminist lawyer. We love a litigious Palestinian queen. In 2021, we saw both Human Rights Watch and B'Tselem, which is an Israeli human rights organization, break through and say, actually, it's apartheid from the river to the sea. And this is echoing what Palestinians have been saying. As good as the amnesty report is, it doesn't go far enough. One of the main reasons Palestinians were pushing for this label of apartheid is because of the ramifications. It pushes for boycotts, investment, sanctions, and it's a crime against humanity. This is the result of many, many years of hard work on the ground and that we continue to push even further until we get what we want, which is Israel to be held accountable and our freedom. Hello and welcome to episode 45 of the Palestine Pod, the weekly podcast where we break down the latest headlines dealing with Palestine from all over the world and bring you stories, commentary, and interviews with the aim of supporting the Palestinian struggle for justice and equal rights. I'm one of your hosts, Lara E. You might know me from Instagram as at Girl, and I'm joined by my co-host, Mikey B. What's up, y'all? Mikey B on TikTok, Michael Scherzer on Instagram, and you can call me Mikey Intifada if you believe firmly that international law is anti-Semitic. And the dictionary definition of apartheid unfairly singles out Zionism. Yeah, we're going to get into all that and more. Before we get into today's episode, please like, comment, and subscribe if you hang out with us on YouTube. And if you're listening on a podcast app, subscribe and leave a review. As always, you can find our full episodes and sources on palestinepod.com. And if you want to get involved in the conversation, feel free to reach out to us at palestinepod.gmail.com and give us a follow on Instagram at the Palestine. We're also going strong on Patreon, so if you love the Palestine Pod and you want to support the project, join our Patreon, where you get early access to our episodes, additional podcasts, and more exclusive content. We're also doing our monthly Zoom happy hours for our Patreon subscribers only, so really exciting stuff. Check it out on patreon.com slash palestinepod. I am so excited for today's interview. We are joined today by Diana Butu, lawyer, former advisor to the negotiating team of the PLO, Palestinian citizen of Israel, fierce feminist lawyer, all of the above, just a great inspiration for for Palestinians, for Palestinian women, for lawyers, for advocates, for activists. I personally have enjoyed and learned so much from just watching you speak, your media appearances, your articles, you know, your academic work. There's just so much to learn from and 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 you're a great inspiration to all of us, really. I'm so happy that you that you gave us your time and that you're joining us today. And let's get into it. Yes. Thank you, Thank you both. That's very kind of both of you. Thank you. We love a litigious Palestinian queen. <laughs> all right. Thank you. Well, thanks for having me. I'm really looking yeah. forward to being on it. Thank you. I want to start, Diana, by asking you where you think we are today in the Palestinian struggle. Um, we're now nine months out of the so-called unity intifada, and you're obviously on the ground in Haifa. And you know, during the unity uprising, you were commenting a lot and publishing a lot about what you were seeing in Haifa, and you know, the attacks on Palestinian citizens that you were seeing there, and this sort of breakdown of this myth of you know mixed cities and this coexistence and 
we're now nine months out. I think a lot of the energy that we saw during that time perhaps has subsided. Maybe, you know, you can comment on that as well. But where do you think we are in light of this recent uprising? And where do you see us going? And, and maybe also comment on, you know, the recent amnesty report. Does it change anything? Is it just another report to add to the stack of other reports that say the same thing and have been saying the same thing? Or is this one, you know, turning the tide perhaps a little bit yeah, sure. Let me begin with the amnesty report. I think it's really important for us to keep in mind and to put the amnesty report in its proper light. Beginning with 2001 with the Durban Anti-Racism Conference, where we saw that Palestinian civil society was pushing for this definition of apartheid. They were pushing for Israel to be labeled an apartheid state. And we were joined by our brothers and sisters in South Africa who stood by us and were also doing the pushing. Now, you know, five years later in 2006, we saw Jimmy Carter come out with his book, Palestine, Peace, Not Apartheid. And it was as though the a glass ceiling had been shattered in a way because this was the first time a person of power was now using the term apartheid. To be fair, he was only referring to the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. And we saw several other commentators come forward and say, yeah, it might be apartheid in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, but not inside Israel. That this is, these are two separate regimes and so on. And then last year in 2021, we saw both Human Rights Watch and B'Tselem, which is an Israeli human rights organization, break through and say, actually, it's apartheid from the river to the sea. And this is echoing what Palestinians have been saying since, as I mentioned, from 2001. We finally come to the year 2022, where Amnesty, the largest human rights organization in the world, membership of 10 million plus, has also finally seen the light and is labeling it apartheid. There's problems, though. The number one problem is, as good as the Amnesty report is, and I do think that it's a very good report, it doesn't go far enough. One of the main reasons that Palestinians were pushing for this label of apartheid is because of the ramifications. What's the impact? And that impact is that it, it pushes for boycotts, it pushes for divestment, it pushes for sanctions, and it's a crime against humanity. And sadly, the amnesty report, while labeling it correctly, isn't pushing for the right remedies. They're not calling for a full boycott of Israel. They're not calling for divestment. They're not calling for sanctions. So it's important that we embrace this, that we recognize that this is the result of many, many years of hard work on the ground, and that we continue to push even further until we get what it is, which we, what we want, which is Israel to be held accountable and our freedom. Now, in terms of the unity uprising or the nine months after the unity uprising, I, I actually don't like the term unity uprising because it implies that there was a little bit of disunity before that. And I can tell you that there wasn't. There's never been a time in Palestinian history where we haven't seen that we are one people. For example, mm. what happens in the West Bank resonates in the Gaza Strip. We see protests happening there. What happens inside the West, inside the Gaza Strip, you'll see protests in 48. I mean, I, I can tell you, you know, all of these war stories of the times that I've been 
um, shot at and beaten and not just me, others as well. So there's always been a connection between us. There's always, we've always been united in our common struggle, which is to be liberated from this settler colonial regime. We've always been united. I think the difference now though, is as you put it nine months after, is we're seeing the same things happening, like the same things that are happening, that were happening in May of 2021 are happening today. In fact, we expect, fully expect that one, that the Salem family in Sheikh Jarrah is going to be expelled from their house at the end of this month, at the end of February. We already saw that last month, the Salahiya family not only yeah. was expelled from their house, but their house was demolished. So all of these same things are happening. We haven't seen that there's been a change. Do we see mobs, lynch mobs in the, in the streets of Haifa in the same way we did in May? No. But the same system of repression, the same system of discrimination still exists. And it's once again back to that place of being hidden again. That's where we are right now. Never know when the boys will get together, run down the street and scream death to Arabs, right? Could be any time. It could be any time. It could be any time. That's exactly the point, Michael. That we, it could be at any moment, and and you live here with your, you know, your what is the expression? Your hand on your heart, um, just waiting for that moment where anything can incite, anything can can lead to them doing whatever it is that they want, and the, and the police are always on their side. That's the problem. Here we are, you know, nine months later. There haven't been any indictments against the people mm. who dragged people out of their cars and smashed their heads on the ground. And this is it's it's absolutely absurd what it is that we're living through here. Meanwhile, people who protested are languishing in administrative detention, being tortured in various concentration yeah. facilities right now. So, you know, they, there are people who so much as just raised a finger to somebody's face and they got disappeared. Absolutely. There's still, and the other way around, like Palestinians, there's still, there's still cases pending against many of the Palestinian protesters. There, some of them remained in prison for quite some time. I don't think there's any left still in prison, but they were in prison for quite some time. And again, it's like this, you know, this uneven system where, where I'm just talking about people inside 48, not even in the West Bank, where we saw that, that when it came to Israelis who were attacking Palestinians, they got off scot-free, whereas Palestinians mm -hmm. who were engaging in protests were thrown into jail with charges still pending against them. No charges are pending against any of the Israelis who harmed people, who physically harmed people and brought them within inches of their life. Now, on the other side, in the West Bank, yes, of course, we've, there are more than 500 Palestinians who yes. are still under this system of, it's got the weirdest name, administrative detention. Like it looks, it sounds so sanitized. You know, you administer yeah. a detention. What is it? What is it? Administrative it's It sounds like you're filing about, you're doing a bunch of paperwork, like in a back room. Like <laughs> it's, so, it's so sanitized, but it's, yeah. there's nothing. There's, it, it's not, it's the, the name is sanitized, but there's nothing clean about it. It's people being arrested most often in the middle of the night in front of their kids and taken out and thrown into, into jail without being charged with anything. And, it, and this can go on for up to six months. It can be renewed indefinitely, six months at a time. I personally have friends who lived in, in prison for more than 11 years on these fake charges under this fake system of you know, administrative detention. Again, the sanitized word. Yeah.
I want to go back to one of the things you said about the amnesty report. You said it doesn't go far enough. When I looked through it, one of the things that I noted was the fact that it doesn't go far enough on understanding the causes for the apartheid system, the ideological underpinning and the foundation, which is Zionism. In fact, the word Zionism appears not, I mean, I, I think maybe even a couple of times, but it's not at all a focus point. So you have this entire report about an apartheid system, but no understanding of why this system even exists in the first place. Correct. And I wonder if I could get your thoughts on, you know, how important it is for human rights organizations to, to make that statement, you know, to, to go that far and to, to talk about Zionism the way that, you know, the UN did in the 70s as, a, as racism, to come out and say it very clearly that Zionism is racism. Zionism is most definitely racism. As a, as a victim of it and my parents being victims of it, it's most definitely racism. I think their problem was that they are always playing this game of what's going to be considered acceptable versus what is not going to be considered acceptable. Where can they push? Where can they pull? You know, it's all these silly calculations of where does this work strategically? Where does this not work strategically? Mm. At, at the end of the day, for me, yes, I think you're right that they didn't go far enough. But my bigger problem with not going far enough is not just the labeling of it, but but here you are, you're laying out a whole regime and you're calling for the dismantling of only the the ending of, of home destructions. That's it, really. You're not calling for the end of the regime as a regime. You're not calling for the end of the apartheid system as an apartheid system. It's like they're picking little pieces of of Israel's practices and and just saying, let's let's just end those little practices. As though if you just end those little practices, it will end the the problem of Zionism and it won't it won't that won't yeah. it's got the whole system has to be taken head on which is why I think it was really important for us to take this and push it further and say we need to boycott we need to divest we need to impose sanctions and not on this fictitious green line uh, basis that you know some some things are kosher and other things are not kosher like if it's if it happens to be East of the green line, it's not kosher, but if it's west of the green line, then it's somehow kosher. I think one thing that it, that becomes clear in all of these reports is that as much as they don't want to say it, what they're effectively saying is that is that there isn't any part of it that is that is clean. It's all interrelated. It's all linked. And the 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 colonization of the West Bank and the apartheid regime that exists in the Gaza Strip is simply an extension of what exists inside inside uh, forty eight. I think it's it's interesting you say that they're doing these sort of, you know, like balancing. They're, they're sort of balancing what might be acceptable because for Zionists, nothing is acceptable. No amount of criticism of their system of repression is acceptable. It's not like they welcomed the amnesty report with open arms because it didn't attack Zionism or the settler colonial nature of the state. So I, I always think that's interesting because it's like if you're going to go out, if you're going to come out and, and publish this hundreds and hundreds of page report, well, then, you know, do it a service and, and, and actually say what's happening. It's not secret that Zionism drives, you know, the, the formal, the codified discrimination and repression that exists across all of, you know, Palestine. So I found, I found actually the 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 response by the Israeli government 
pretty hilarious. And I thought, really, you've had 21 years. You, you still holding on to those same talking points? Like, you haven't refined the talking points over 21 years? 21 years. That's a long time. <laughs> you, you couldn't figure out a new talking point? <laughs> you really got to respect the dedication, you know, because it's like they are dead set on one strat. It's like a, a quarterback who only knows how to run the ball. You know, like they are every single time running it up the middle. It doesn't matter how much we've, you know, become aware of their strategy. It's absolutely hysterical. And the and part of the problem, Laura, is that amnesty in many ways caved to them. You know, they got so yeah. afraid. Yeah. And and you started seeing this backpedaling of the report. Let the report speak for itself. And if anything, you can have people come and say, look, this didn't really even go as far as we wanted it to go, but Here's what we have. And instead they they started backpedaling and backpedaling right. and backpedaling. And it 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 became somewhat um, comedic to to watch it in the end. Yeah, the Amnesty Report did something that I see a lot of these like propaganda scientists on TikTok doing, which is trying to reduce Zionism to just like a few tiny little things that we could easily tweak and get rid of. And then it's, you know, right back on the race course. We're all good. And it's like, nah, if you shut, even if you shut down every single checkpoint inside of Palestine, that's not going to keep the scientists in Iran alive. You know what I mean? Like, no. <laughs> there's still going to be assassinations all over the world. Like, they're still going to funnel guns and money to anybody mm -hmm. who's trying to steal resources. Yeah, and you know, this is the the amazing thing is that they many people have reduced the uh, the occupation. They've reduced this apart to the idea of the physicality that it's yeah. somehow yes. about about settlements. It's somehow about checkpoints. You know, we we lived under a Zionist regime before there were any checkpoints. In fact, there were no checkpoints before the Oslo peace process. There did, none of them existed. The idea of settlements is, again, there was a there was an apartheid regime that existed between the years of 1948 and 1967. It didn't click in in 1967 with the construction of settlements. It's a whole body, it's a whole system of of privilege, of Jewish privilege over Palestinians. And it's only when we recognize that the root of that and dismantle that, that we can move forward. But you're right. Like they're looking for these, like, oh, like Ro Khanna, the U.S. Uh, member of Congress. Oh, yeah. Oh, God. That all oh, Palestinians need fewer checkpoints. Hey, no, actually we need no checkpoints. But it's, again, this reduction. <laughs> it's just reducing it down to these small little physical elements. Yeah, it's he's, so he's, dehumanizing. They'd be, they'd be like, like, hey, we're cattle. Yeah, they'd be like, hey, we have to kill less Palestinians, right? Like, we're not exactly. Nobody's yeah. saying stop yeah. killing Palestinians. Like, that's yeah. a U.S. member yeah. of Congress when they come out and make yeah. a statement about Palestinians. They're like, we're not crazy, right? Like, just yeah. just keep it down a little bit. Just keep it down. Don't don't annoy us. Just you know, calm it down a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Don't don't make it a, a citizen that is a dual citizen of America and Palestine because then things get kind of testy for us. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. That's right. I mean, I remember back when Israel attacked the flotilla. You know, there yes. was all this buzz that one of the individuals that was killed was a Turkish American binational. These killings happen all the time, and <laughs> it's really in those select moments when they kill the wrong person, or when they, for example, attacked Bukhader and they beat him to a pulp, and he was a Palestinian American visiting his family in Palestine over the summer. It's in those moments where these stories come out, 
It's like, but this is happening all the time, all the time to people on the ground and nobody, you know, their stories are perhaps told, perhaps not, perhaps they get, you know, just a microsecond of attention or not at all. And, you know, we just, it doesn't matter because they don't have, you know, the blue passport. Rokana is like, hey, before you murder someone, check their paperwork for me, you know, yeah. makes it easier. Yeah, makes it easier. Exactly. This is the, and well, that's the whole approach of this administration now is let's not really focus on this. It's just you don't do anything that's going to get the world's attention. Just you do what you need to do, but do it quietly. Just as, as few waves as possible. Don't make any waves. And Joe Biden, American citizen. Joe Biden loves a low profile. Like he is exactly. the king of low profile because people are now running with this thing where it's like, you don't really even see Joe Biden. It's like, yeah, well, they keep him locked away <laughs> for good reason, right? Because anytime he gets any airtime, you're like, is this guy good? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> but yeah. I was telling you that last week. I was like, when? Yeah, you did, did say Joe that. <laughs> you did say that. I was that. like, have you seen him lately? I think it's funny because Michael and I were talking on last week's episode about how now the big thing that they're like trying to pretend like they care about is settler violence. Like you had like Yair Lapid come out and say like, oh, I, I promise I'll pay attention to settler violence as if like that is the issue. And that if we just solve settler violence, then Palestinians will all suddenly have, you know, all of their rights fulfilled. It's, it's, you know, the settler violence happens the most, uh, just so that you can see the viciousness of it during the olive harvest. The olive mm -hmm. harvest, for anybody who knows about Palestine, it's like the one time of year where you see everybody across Palestine happy. Everybody. It doesn't mm -hmm. matter your economic status. It doesn't matter your religion. It doesn't matter if you're from a city or from a village. Everybody across the board is happy because olives are, are just, there's so much of mainstay in our, in our daily life. And of course, when do settlers attack the most? During the olive harvest, during the olive season. And, and it's so, it's not at all coincidental that this is when the Israeli government just magically turns a blind eye to everything that they're doing. So people, they'll, the Israeli settlers will torch houses, they'll torch olive orchards, they'll torch uh, cars, they'll do whatever it is that they want to do just to try to intimidate people and to prevent us from having our joy and prevent us from having that access to our land. So I don't believe anything that this government says that somehow now it's the settlers because this is the same person who will turn around and if he needs the support of the settlers, will will do whatever he needs to do to get their votes. Because one thing that, again, going back to this amnesty report, one thing that's become clear is that the settlers are not separate from the state of Israel. They're such an integral part. They're, it's not as though... They're a different class of people. They're just so enmeshed. There isn't a sign that you, when you're driving in with, throughout the West Bank, that says "Welcome to Occupied Territory," uh -huh. or a sign that says "You are now entering a settlement," or "You are now." The entire state is a settlement. Whole, the entire exactly, state is a settlement. Exactly, and 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 the people are entirely enmeshed. So when you see that Lapid is saying something, it's the equivalent of him trying to make a distinction that somehow they're different than the rest of Israeli society when it, it's all enmeshed. It's all enmeshed. You don't, there is no difference. It's not as though these are colonizers who are, who are heading back to the mainland 
these are these are colonizers that are living within meters like on the same um, within meters of their so-called neighbors being the other israelis this isn't a they they they're not totally separate um physically or geographically or even ideologically they're it's one they're one and the same then you have itmar ben giver pulling up yeah. outside of sheikh jarrah pulling up in the negev with a loaded gun talking about we're going to send you to syria so you know for all the people who are like oh it's not it's this it's the government and there's not this it's like it's all of it it's all of it collectively yeah. working yeah. together yeah benikvir himself you know he's a kahanist he, he's a, yeah. he's a follower of mayer kahana who believed in the ethnic cleansing of palestinians from palestine he openly calls for ethnic cleansing he himself he's been on tape uh when he was younger he dressed up for purim as ruch goldstein and and came out and said ruch goldstein is my hero i'm dressing up exactly like my hero and th- this man he will do anything possible not only to get the cameras on him but to get the ideology into into the on the, on the cameras so for example last week when he was when he pulled up in front of the salem house in sheikh jarrah um a police officer i think he, he grabbed him and he benikvir you see benikvir falling to the ground and then right. being rushed to the hospital and uh pushed and over pushed over by a gust of wind it looked like exactly and then you but for two days afterwards he was on every israeli channel like the equivalent uh in the united states of npr abc cbs but this is a man who calls for ethnic cleansing of palestinians and they just normalize him because mm-hmm. as we were saying he's no different than the rest of the state he's part of the state now the the funny thing to that story is that the two doctors who treated him in the emergency ward are two palestinian doctors Mohammed so i was just thinking to myself oh, how delicious that he rolls <laughs> up into this into the hospital and Hamid and Ahmed are the two who are treating him You know, on the notion of the the whole state is a settlement. This reminds me of one of my favorite quotes of yours that I found in an NPR article where you said this is, you know, exactly the problem. Israel came to us. We didn't come to Israel. Correct. Absolutely. And, and Absolutely. it's like nobody has ever so succinctly described the entire history of, you know, the last 100 years of the Palestinian struggle for for justice. I think as well as you did in that quote which is that we were here and then all these other people showed up and then they imposed their system of you know racial domination and segregation and discrimination on us and and that's and that's it that's the story um, and they destroyed communities Laura. that's the part that is you know, I know you know this already but my father passed away back in November and my father was really one of the main reasons that I moved to Palestine and you know when I was growing up my father used to talk about the members of the community who were from his from his hometown Lemjedel Lemjedel was it is 2 uh, kilometers away from Nazareth but in in 1948 when with, during the nakba when israel ethnically cleansed palestinians from limjedel people ended up fleeing so they destroyed his community and some fled to nazareth some to lebanon some to syria some to jordan some to other places and my father until his you know practically till his last breath 
kept always reminding me not only about the land that we have in Limshaden, but about the community that was destroyed and the and the people that he lost. So one at one point, as my father was in a hospital in Haifa, his last few days, he it was a, a nurse, um, a, a nurse named Tarek Lubani. And my father looked up at him and he said, Lubani, Lubani, Limjadil. And he said, yes, of course, I mean, of course, we're from Limjadil. And he said, I know I'm in good hands then. It's, you know, it's this whole feeling of that a whole society was destroyed. It wasn't just that they came to us and that they that they imposed a system of laws. It's they actively destroyed communities mm-hmm. and left them fleeing with people asking about one another. The Nakba was almost 74 years ago, and my father remembered it every day as though it had been just the day before. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. I mean, this is, yeah, thank you for sharing that with us. This is very much the reality when you're talking about over 500 cities and villages and towns that were destroyed in a matter of what, like a year? I mean, with the majority of it happening within a few months and then their inhabitants being expelled to other neighboring countries or in your family's case to like not very far away, but then having your land taken from you because you were classified as present absentees, which, you know, again, it's another one of these sanitized words that Israel has created, you know, that this settler state has, you know, just fabricated in a very just clear attempt to steal, right? They codify stealing by giving it these like bizarre, vague words, you know, present absentee. What is that? It means that you were expelled, but not very far. But because you were expelled by by them, they now can take your land. I mean, what is that even? That just doesn't even make sense. The whole point is that they want to create a veneer of legality. Yes. So they try to put this this like veneer that somehow everything that they do is is legal. But there's nothing legal about stealing a person's land. There's nothing legal about destroying an entire community and sending them packing and uh, and then erasing it and putting a new label on it. I know you both are the lawyers, yeah. but uh, you know, I, I don't think you have to be an expert to be like mass murder, not legal, right? Exactly. <laughs> not cool. Not cool. Not right. Not legal. And I, you know, my, in my uh, dad's village, there's now an Israeli city called Magdalha Amek there. And in it, you drive into this into the village, it's now town, and there's a sign that says, established in 1951. So, and I, I always think, how do I break it to them? How do I let them know? My dad was born in 1939, and his father, who was born in the 1800s, was from Alimjedel. And I don't know even before that, before that, before that, but it's this is what they're, what, Zionism is all about. This is what they're all about. And so for them, just by putting up a sign that somehow it was created in 1951, it, to, to the people who are living there, the Israelis living there, they think, oh, yeah, this is you know something we created, not something that we demolished, destroyed, ex- expelled everybody, and you know, and destroyed a community. You see the same thing in the US and in Canada when, when you drive into a new town. You know, it's yeah. as if the land wasn't there before when the clock starts running in like the 1700s. It's very bizarre. Exactly. But that's the nature of settler colonialism. It's it's starting, it's rewriting a history 
you know, in a specific course and you start the clock when you arrive because only you matter. Nothing else matters Correct. before you. Correct. Right. Absolutely. Because you're the right skin color or you're the right race or you're the right, whatever, you know, religion, religion. whatever it may be. Yeah. Their relationship to the law is very interesting, right? Because on the one hand, they built up this literal apartheid wall full of lies and legalities. But at the same time, they are like, the law doesn't apply to us, right? Like anything we do is legal because of either the Holocaust or anti-Semitism. It's an insane strategy that if ever argued in front of a court, I feel like would probably lose, right? And that's why they've been so effective at keeping things out of court, right? Absolutely. You know, Michael, one of the one of the cases that we're seeing right now is the Salem family in Sheikh Jarrah. And all of the cases that are happening in Sheikh Jarrah, at their core, they're all about, or the claim is, that these properties were owned by people who were Jewish before 1948. And so now their descendants are are requesting the land back. Okay, makes sense on one level. But then the flip side is, shouldn't these same families who can actually see where their houses are and and can travel to their land, shouldn't they also be given their houses back, their land back? And that's when the courts say, oh, no, 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 it doesn't go that far. No, 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 we can't. That would would just create chaos. So it's that same idea that the law applies for their benefit, but not to their detriment. They argue for the right of Palestinian yeah. return in that case, right? Their attorney generals wrote. That's exactly what one of the responses was. Let's watch out here because let's see where the logical conclusion is. The logical conclusion is you're asking for one group to be get, to be compensated and another not to be. Yeah. yeah, it seems like there are millions of people all over the world who'd like to make that argument. Absolutely. 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 Yeah. It reminds me of when liberal Zionists try to be like, oh, we're just going back to our ancestral homeland. Would you, how would you feel if you wouldn't be able to come back after 3000 years? I'm like, well, but what? It's like, have you heard this logic before? (laughs) It's like, you can't argue with them on the basis of logic because there is none. That's it. So there's, it's a, it's there, it's a totally illogical, irrational viewpoint and uh and so they try to argue with it but then when you just sh- shrug your shoulders and say really really it does the whole thing crumbles like uh, malcolm x said the exact same thing that their argument has no basis yes. in logic or in religion yeah, yes exactly yes yeah. absolutely good reference michael yeah. I read in your IMEU bio, you said, quote, I had mixed feelings about negotiating. There is a structural problem when Mm -hmm. Palestinians negotiate with Israelis. It's like negotiating with a gun to your head, where the people under occupation have to negotiate their own release. So as a legal advisor to the Palestinian Liberation Organization, you were someone who was very close to the negotiations from 2000 until 2007. What are some of the most egregious interactions that you can recall from the Israelis during those times? Oh, gosh, Michael, this is like you're opening up the can of worms. I know. Um, I'm so sorry. Oh, no, it's just it's the where do I begin problem. Yeah, it's, it's not the trauma of it. I, I hope I've gone past it, but it's the where do I begin? Where do I begin? All right. So I'll tell you a few of them. All, it, all of the negotiations were, were conducted in um, two places. Either they were conducted outside of the country, so overseas, mm-hmm. 
or they were conducted in Tel Aviv. And for uh, Palestinians to get from Ramallah or from Gaza, because there were some negotiators who were based in Gaza, to go to Tel Aviv, or even internationally, you have to go through checkpoints. So there are different types of checkpoints throughout the West Bank. I, as somebody who holds Israeli citizenship, I can cross through any of those checkpoints. This is the, the privileged class within the, within the ghetto, right? within, the, within the, the, the system. I'm considered of the, of the, the privileged class. But, the, and most of the Palestinian negotiators, most but not all, had what were called VIP passes, which meant that they could go through most, but not all, of the Israeli checkpoints. But even though they could go through most, but not all Israeli checkpoints, they had to have special permission to be able to go through these checkpoints. Yeah. So, so you know, you have a, you're, you're considered a VIP, but then you need an extra, extra permission to be able to go through these passports. Yeah. I mean, it, it very, just, very Disneyland exactly. of horror, like fast pass vibes. <laughs> like, exactly. If this isn't like, just looking totally dystopian to you, then there's something wrong. Anyways, this is the system. So one day we were leaving from Ramallah and we were not going through the regular checkpoint, which is called Kalandia, big, massive checkpoint. But instead we were going through a checkpoint that is pretty much for Israeli settlers only. Israeli settlers, Israeli citizens, and it's called Hizma. And we were stopped at the checkpoint and pulled over. Now, the soldiers who pulled us over, you know, 18, 19, 20, something like that. And they looked at the different IDs that we all had. So they looked at my ID and I, of course, was allowed in the privilege class, I'm allowed to go. They looked at the IDs of the two other people who were with me. One of them had a VIP pass and the other didn't have a VIP pass and suddenly said, no, no, you don't, you can't go through this checkpoint. And you know, then I'm, I found myself in this really weird situation where I'm saying, didn't you hear on the news that there's a negotiation session today? Like we're actually on our way to a negotiation session. Didn't you hear about this in the news? No. Okay. Well, can you call your commanding officer to check? No. You're going to, going to have to leave. You're, you, Deanna, can walk, but everybody else is going to have to go around. And it leads to this, we were there for about two hours with, with me being the most irate, saying, can you, just, can you just call the people that we're supposed to be meeting? And maybe they, like, it was like you were, we were so desperate to be able to just pass this checkpoint, to be able to go. That, that, you know, you're like, it's like you're looking for the slightest thing just to be able to let you through. And it just became so bizarre to me that these soldiers had so much power over our lives and that the system within Israel was so dysfunctional that, and I'm still convinced, as much as people say this was deliberate, it wasn't deliberate. This was definitely not something that they had done deliberately. But it just shows you that they don't need to think about what life is like for Palestinians. They don't need to think that they've created this whole superstructure that makes it impossible for Palestinians to move. 
because they're such of the privileged class. They just assume that eh, they'll make it, they'll make it at whatever time. And that's it. And so it's just, that was one of the ones that annoyed me the most because it was exactly, you could see just how an 18, 19, 20 year old was lording over us, was commanding our lives and our ability, even when we were supposed to be going to do, you know, so quote unquote, peace negotiations. That was one. It sounds like you had to negotiate on your way to negotiation. Exactly. <laughs> that was right? Exactly. And it was, and you know, here we were on the phone with, uh, at the time, the prime minister's office. Can you, can you reach somebody? Can you this? And they'd say, just tell them that you're going to this negotiation session. Like, ding dong, I really did. (laughs) Why didn't we think of that? (laughs) 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 At one point, just thinking, really? You just, and we were sitting in the car and the the newscast came on. And there's a top of the hour newscast. And I deliberately turned it to the Hebrew ones so they could hear that there was a negotiation session that was happening. But it just the radio is like Palestinian negotiators don't show up. (laughs) (laughs) They're late to negotiations. Clearly, they're not serious. Can you believe that that 18 year old, not a student of international law? Personally, I'm shocked. (laughs) Oh, you know, um, this is an aside, but uh, I find it really interesting just how how ignorant people here are like they don't know Palestinians who live down the street or much less the people Palestinians who are living in uh, in cities that they're occupying or next door or whatever it is it's just so it's so foreign to them so the for them it was a very mechanical routine Mm -hmm. job you look do they have this id let them pass if they don't have them, don't don't let them pass. It was just so. It, it, it just so shows you how they have the privilege. They have a luxury of being ignorant. Dumb people far easier to manipulate. You know, you just go red light or green light. That's it. Exactly. Exactly. Another story was um, this was oh, this was eight, also ages ago, and we were looking at a number of different. Uh, they were looking at a map of the West Bank. And at every negotiation session, the Israelis would, they would draw these maps of the West Bank and they would, you know, like move a line here and move a line there. So you know, it's just like, you know, when you're doing the graphics, you can just you know, move your little line here and there. But again, this privilege that they don't realize within those, wherever the line is moving, there's Palestinians living there. There's, there's a village here and a village there. In fairness to them, they're not so great at drawing in the lines, right? Yeah. <laughs> kind of slow, a lot of them. <laughs> so here there, there's a map that they were that um, they had, and they were drawing the area of that part of the West Bank that they wanted to take. And and it was to understand the way that it looks, the West Bank sort of looks like a kidney, you know this. And yeah. there's a part where there's an Israeli settlement right smack in the middle of the West Bank called Ariel. It's one of the largest mm-hmm. settlements. And so you see this guy like come with his, with the, the, the line and swoop over all the way to Ariel and then all the way to uh, the Jordan Valley. 
and then swoop back, right? So it's like, so the, now the kidney is divided into two pieces. And I looked at him, I just, I, I'm sure I had the look of like both perplexed and disgusted at the same time. And I said to the, the guy who was drawing the map, uh, who was supported by a lawyer, I said, why, why did you, why, I'm, I'm not understanding. Why, why did you draw the line like this? And he says, you know, totally like plain face, Ariel, the settlement of Ariel. I said, well, screw the community of Ariel. I don't, I don't care. They, they came to us. We didn't come to them. And, and, uh, and he looked at me and said, no, 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 that it doesn't work like that. And I said, well, how does it work? And there was an Israeli, uh, he's, by the way, somebody who considers himself part of the left. He turns to me and he said, and I said, well, you know, on what basis of international law are you asking for, are you drawing this line, asking for this deviation? He looks at me and he says, international law. He said, well, respect <laughs> international law. It was just, you know, like, we'll respect international law when we're forced to respect international law. Yeah. And until that time, it's just us together in a room. That was it. And again, it was wow. one of those like, whoa, yeah. That is terrifying. Again, the way you who, just said that. Who, yes, and it was terrifying. And this is somebody who classifies himself as part of the left. What is the left? I keep left hearing, I keep hearing about this Israeli left. Like, what is that? Like biodegradable bullets? I'm very confused. Exactly. The left, left. There is no left. <laughs> there is no left. There's a there's a very small, very small, dedicated number of activists who are anti-Zionists, who push, who work, who not just show up to protest, but organize them. They yes. stand side by side with us. They know that we're leading, uh, they're, they're there as support, um, who put their bodies on the line. But uh, they're few in number. They're few in number. Yeah. And I, I personally know sure a few of them. them. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure we both know the few that exist, and that's it. Otherwise, but, they're they gauge left on the basis of right. Yeah. So the further right the the country goes, then then the the further to the right the so-called left goes, and so that's what right they, gets gauged as being left wing in Israel. So yeah, your Lapid is considered a, a left and left center. That's yeah, crazy. Because most people just consider him a fascist. I consider him a fascist. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Absolutely fascist. Yeah. Crazy to me how, on the one hand, it really is this impunity which drives so much of Israel's land theft and, and, and the continuance of this system. And, you know, on the other hand, you see Israel creating its own national laws to suit and to serve the purpose of this land theft. So like you said, they're hiding behind this veneer of legality, but it's only laws that they make up, which are in total contravention with all the other laws that everybody else, you know, agrees matter, right? International law. And then they say, no, we don't, we don't follow international law. We follow the laws we make up and the laws we make up call for discrimination and segregation and, racial domination why even have the laws like the, the israeli laws like what 
what, what's the purpose of that even? Just go all out at the point because of this impunity. It seems like yeah. they yeah. they don't even need to hide behind it because they have, they've never been held accountable. Can we just for a second go back to it's just you and me in a room? That's a literal <laughs> line from a exactly. super villain. Like if that was in but a Hollywood, if that was in a Hollywood movie, I would be like, that's too much. Like you overwrote yeah. the villain. That's, but that's a literal that's quote. Exactly, that's a literal. That's exactly quote. my point because when quote. you know when it comes down to it, it's just them and their whims. You know, maybe maybe in public they're trying to hide behind their own laws and make it look like there's no there's a process, there's a system in place here, and that might confuse and fool some people, but. Behind closed doors, it's just whatever they feel like. It's just made up. It must be a very bizarre dynamic because you're like, you don't even know what to stand on. It's like, whose line is it anyways, where the points don't matter and all the laws are made up? Here are some, you know, some legal examples. There used to be a time where they would judge, they have this whole dance. Actually, all countries have this dance. Laura, you know this where the Supreme Courts of all these countries around the settler colonial countries will have this dance of what they call balancing, right? We need to balance mm-hmm. this with that and so on. And then the balance never works really. The way, it doesn't work. It's just a way of, of using words to justify whatever it is that you want to do. There's no real yeah. balancing because it can go one way or the other based on the facts of the case. A couple of cases that came out they were really fascinating where it's exactly this point where you say to yourself, well, you know, why are you even bothering to pass laws? Like, why don't you just say people who are Jewish get all of this stuff. If you're not Jewish, good luck. Because that's yeah. really in effect what the, the system is. Is that um, not the law already? Like, Isn't that the law? Exactly. <laughs> but, but just to make it clearer, right? To make it right. Clearer. And one of the ways, so there was a couple of cases. One of them was there was a, back in the, in the 90s, there was, when they were doing all of this balancing, oh, we need to balance this and balance that and balance this. The, some people tried to challenge the, all of the settlements. So instead of challenging settlement by settlement or land takeover by land takeover, there was a big challenge that said, can we just challenge all these settlements? Like, aren't they all legal? Hello. And what's interesting is the court came back and said, no, we can't touch that. That's a political question. We have to leave that to the politicians. So again, it's like, well, okay, well, I guess the law doesn't really matter. And then there was another case where there's a, a, a law that exists on the books here. It's called the uh, admissions committee's law. And what that law is about is that if a community is of a certain size, small, like smallish size, then the community itself, of course, I'm using the sanitized language now, the community itself can decide whether you are acceptable to be living in the community. Again, that should set off a whole bunch of trigger warnings. What does acceptable mean? Who decides what's acceptable? Is it religion? Is it race? Is it if you're queer? Is it if you're disabled? Like what can, what's considered acceptable? So lawyers- Whatever you feel like, like it. Exactly. Whatever you feel like. Let's yeah. roll the dice exactly. and live our lives. Let's roll the dice. <laughs> exactly. So, the, so some lawyers went to court challenging this and saying- Let's be clear what you're really, this is code for Jewish, not Jewish. This is code for Jewish, not Jewish. And the court, which they were expecting the court to say, well, not really, we need to balance and you know all this sort of nice little dance. The court comes out and says, yeah, 
and so and and so you know basically saying you're you're absolutely right and this is a jewish state and given that it's a jewish state these communities should be allowed to determine whether they want non-jews to live within their communities it just that simple it was just that simple so it began laws began in this way Laura, where where they tried to make it look as though they had this veneer of anti-discrimination, but it's now morphed into a place where who needs to hide anymore? It's all out in the open anyway. Discrimination is the law. You try to demand equality, but it's like you can't because there's no basis for equality in the legal system. Whenever Israelis are questioned in media or whatever about the, the status of, for example, Palestinian citizens of Israel, They'll say, no, 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 they have a great time. They, they're in the Knesset. And it's like, but you failed to mention the, you know, 60, 70 some laws on the books that expressly call for their exclusion or discrimination. They're in the Knesset. They can't be prime minister. It's great they're yeah. in Knesset. They can't ever be the, the president of the, of the country. They're in the Knesset, but you've stolen their land. I'm sure they'll give back their Knesset pass if you give us back our land. I mean, we're, we're good with that. I'm sure I can speak on behalf of all of them to say, we will give up the Knesset if you give us back all of our land and all of our rights. We're, we're good. It's such a weird argument to be like, hey, you are systematically discriminating against a group of people. And then their response is like, no, we've got doctors. Like, yeah. What That's exactly? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yes, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. We let them be in parliament. Yeah, we let them that parliament. bad. Yeah. We let them be in. We let them in. You know, inhabit this little space where they can make no impact on anything. Even that phrasing, like "we let them be this or that," is so like you clearly dominate the entirety of their existence, right? You are admitting it in saying "we let them be such and such." You pretty effortlessly <laughs> embody the intersection between academia and frontline activism, something that we so rarely see from people who are, like, are usually a part of either camp, but not both. Oftentimes, it's people who are like strictly academic, and then they get kind of disconnected from the ground, or largely frontline activists who don't have access to the halls of government or academia. So how can Palestinians learn from the South African struggle where there was like a direct connection between both of those groups and apply it to the current occupation? That's a really great question. Thanks. One of the amazing things about the ANC was that they brought in different cross-sections of society. So people from different, from academia, from the grassroots, from uh, from labor unions, from uh, you name it, they were there was across the board. And that was one of the amazing things about the PLO in its earlier days yeah. is that they really tried to bring in all of these different communities, whether it was the business community alongside with academia, with grassroots, with, with, with feminists, with children, with labor unions, with you name it. It was all across the board and it was incredible to watch. And that's where I got my political education was just seeing all of these different groups come together and merge together. So really interesting to see, for example, Edward Said alongside people from the labor movement to be alongside with activists like Faisal Hosseini, you name it, it was all sort of one. And then with Oslo, 
all of that disappeared. Yeah. And not just disappeared. It's not like it magically disappeared. I think there was really a decision that was taken to divide and to destroy all of that. And that's why for me now living in Palestine, you see all of these fractures. This goes back to your earlier question, Laura, about where are we now? You see all these fractures and divisions within society where it's we're no longer, I don't feel that we're any longer, or two hands, let's say, working together, clapping together, one people working together. We always have been one people, but they've there's been such a division that's been created within class, within groups, within within uh, you know, academia versus non. I mean, just it's incredible to see just how divided we are. So we don't have any longer um, the labor unions that are backing the the political movement or the political movement that's relying on academics or the grassroots that's pushing alongside the labor movements. It's just, it's all been destroyed effectively. So it's by chance that if you go to a protest in Beta, for example, in the West Bank, that you'll see that there are people who are from the labor movement, but it's not as though you see the, the, the unions working alongside with the grassroots. This happened just the one time during May where we did see that there was a major strike, but then, but then it, it just as quickly as it came is, is as quickly as it went. And I think the lesson to be learned from South Africa is that we need to rebuild our national movement and our, our national movement needs to be rebuilt in a way that encompasses everybody. We all have a role to play. And I don't care what political faction you're from. I think that everybody has a, a role to play in our liberation. But there's been a deliberate decision to make this only about Fatah and only about the elite within Fatah mm-hmm. and not about anybody else within, within our political struggle. Yeah, Thank I want to maybe just go off of that really quickly possible, Michael, because I have a question about Oslo. So I think it kind of is related. I think, you know, when you look back on the history, you see how PLO starts out as this liberation movement. They have this like huge sort of unprecedented success before the UN. They centered armed resistance. They were able to get the passage of the General Assembly resolution affirming that Zionism is racism. Seems like we were, in, in a weird way, it seems like we were closer to liberation then than we are now. And then at the same time, you know, you hear all of these statements being made about, you know, Oslo being dead. So I want to get your thoughts. I mean, is Oslo dead? Was it ever alive? Is, were we closer then than we are now? Are we getting to a breaking point now because of all the things that are coming out, you know, with apartheid or, or was do we need to look back in order to go forward? You know, are we paving like a new future? Or should we look backwards and learn from, from the past? Cause I feel like with Oslo, I mean, when I, when I look at what happened with Oslo, it infuriates me. I want to scream because it seems so obvious to me that you will never get more later by accepting less now, by yeah. conceding your rights. Now you're never going to like get more later, but that seems like that was like the whole philosophy of Oslo. That was like the Palestinian liberation equivalent of like, mom, are we there yet? (laughs) That's absolutely true. The philosophy of Oslo, there were a few things that were happening around the time of Oslo that I think we can't discount. The first was that 
the PLO took the decision to back Saddam Hussein. Yes. Actually, he didn't. It wasn't even so much backing it, but in that environment, yes. uh, not not being against the occupation is effectively backing it. Bad and tactical move. Yeah. Very bad. And so, as a result, that was when you saw the PLO being its absolute weakest, and Israel capitalized on it and saw that the PLO was its absolute weakest and said, "Hey, what do you think of this deal?" And they went with it. The other part of Oslo was that. There was a sense that things need to be done in a slow piecemeal approach and that this slow piecemeal approach will build up trust and that in building up trust, then Israel will be able to do make big concessions. Well, history has proven that that's obviously wrong. Never been an instance in Israeli history where they have felt, quote unquote, safe enough that they're going to make territorial concessions. It's never happened. The only time that they've pulled out of things is because they were attacked during Yom Kippur War. That's it. There was no other time that in history where they said, be nice to us and we'll give you, and it doesn't work. So that was Oslo. Is Oslo still alive today? Absolutely. That's the problem. That all Mm. of the structures that were created around Oslo and the thinking of Oslo is still very much alive. Now, the reason Mm. I was writing as you were speaking was I was trying to remember all of the names of the Israeli prime ministers that have been that have been uh, around not since Oslo, just since Mahmoud Abbas has been president, and and I wrote them down. There's five. When he was elected in 2005 as president, uh, Sharon was in office. Yeah. Then came Olmert. Then came Tsipi Livni for a short period of time. Then Netanyahu. Ten years of Netanyahu, and now Naftali Bennett. And throughout all of this period, these are five different prime ministers that he had the ability to challenge Oslo some way, somehow along the five. But instead, he has bought into this Oslo framework of keeping things quiet, making sure that Israel feels, quote unquote, safe, working on uh, never challenging Israel's theft of Palestinian land, never challenging checkpoints never trying to challenge them militarily. It's always been, it's a mindset that has been bought into. And I'm Oslo is beyond, more than just negotiations, it's well beyond that. It's the mindset that mm-hmm. Palestinians are cordoned off into these tiny little spaces, all of their land that surround those tiny spaces taken. And, and this is a mindset, and there's a president you know, some fictitious person that we call a fictitious, powerful person that we call president and so on. And that's the problem that still persists to this current day. It's that it's it's not as though it's dead. The peace process, the so-called peace process, negotiations, of course, dead and will never be revived. But that mindset, that mentality, that idea that we're at our absolute weakest and given that we are at our weakest, we have to accept anything. And the mindset, the mentality that we should be accepting living under less than human conditions, that sadly remains, as long as we get labeled president, that sadly remains, that that is alive and well. Amongst the ruling class, perhaps, but amongst people, obviously not the case. 
I mean, I, I say that was we were talking. Yeah, yeah, but we were talking. For example, I, I don't know. It was like several months ago. There were supposed to be elections, and then they were canceled. And yeah. like thousands of people registered to. There were like thousands of candidates for the elections. I think right. people are hungry for something different. Yeah, um, but not with you know, like you said, the system. Yeah, that's the problem. Are is that right. I, I, you know, I know lots of, of Palestinians who are living in the West Bank, and as much as people are complaining about it, and they should be complaining because this is they've brought us to our worst point in history. When you mm. see that that some, the likes of Naftali Bennett is considered to be a relief to the international community because it's not Netanyahu. It just shows you this is a guy who's bragged about how many Arabs he's killed. He's got a justice minister who's called Palestinian mothers snakes. If we're at that state, then it just shows you just how low, what a low point we're at in our, in our political history. And sadly, because they've set up a system in which we are all now dependent in some way on the Palestinian Authority. There's very few people who are willing to challenge it. They'll challenge it within the framework of elections, but they're not going to go and topple it. That's the sad part now. Now, I'm not somebody who's going to say, I again, I live in a system of, I'm, I'm not the person who's suffering under military occupation. So it's not for me to say that people should be going up and, and um, toppling of Abu Mazen. There might be other reasons that they want to keep him in place. I don't know. But at the same time, it's you just see that they've spent these 25, close to 30 years wearing people down to the point where people are just thinking about how it is that they're going to live a decent life. Is the name of this episode Overthrow Abbas? <laughs> I'd love I'd love for it to be this would listen to it if we named yeah, it that no. No. you know uh, Dano I don't know if this is still the case but when I visited the occupied West Bank in 2010 I was shocked by how many times I saw the photo of Yasser Arafat hanging in every Palestinian home that I visited, but I never saw any photos of yeah. Abu Mazen anywhere. And I was telling my tata, what is this? Like, what is this? You know, and I think my impression was that nobody takes him seriously. I mean, I, I don't know if that's, yeah, if you you're can speak to right. that, but. No, you're absolutely but, right. But he's been in office now for 17 yeah. years. 17 years and has done, I can't say he's done nothing. That's actually not true. He's, he's taken us backwards. Yeah. And not only taken us backwards politically, he's, he's made us dependent economically. He's, he's created an entire class of people that is a security class that have made a lot of money off of controlling us. He's passed Get this, this you'll, you'll find this interesting. Between the period of 1996 to the year 2006, the first 10 years of the Palestinian Legislative Council and the first 10 years of the Palestinian Authority. If you look at that period, and then you look at the period of, of 2006 to 2016, again, 10 years, 10 years, right? Just 10 years, 10 years. Double the number of laws were passed in that second half from 2006 to 2016 than were passed in the first half. Why is that significant? Because in the first half, they were done through a parliamentary process of people voting and voting against laws. In the second half, that second 10-year period, they were all passed by presidential decree. 
Now, then you should ask yourself, well, what are all these laws that are being passed from the period of 2006 to 2016? They're primarily economic bills. These are economic bills to benefit his friends, to give yeah. them monopolies. So it's, again, he, it's not as though he's done nothing. He's actually sent us backwards. He's made it comfortable for Israel. Yeah. He's made it comfortable for these five Israeli prime ministers who've been around during, during the period that he's been in office. He's just, he's made it so easy for them and so difficult for, for us. And, and yet he's, he still persists. He, he still is around. And I think that he's still around because they want him to be around. Otherwise, yeah, they would have Because Israel allows around. him to be Absolutely. around. That's Absolutely. why. And I think this reminds me of back in May when we saw Palestinians protesting in the West Bank and, and you saw the PA and their, and their, you know, literal thugs that were out in the street with bricks, like trying to attack protesters, prevent them from holding demonstrations. You should be out there demonstrating with them. The whole, you know, point is to be unified against apartheid and settler colonialism. And yet you are here doing the dirty work of the occupation. The same happened. And I remember um, there's actually virtually every instance, but you mentioned the flotilla of 2010, May, 2010. Mm -hmm. And during May 2010, it was the exact same situation where where people were protesting Israel's attack on the the flotilla. And instead, we were getting beaten by the Palestinian Authority police. This is at a time when I still lived in Ramallah. Yeah, I mean, it looks like anybody who does really try and challenge them in any significant way gets disappeared, right? Like Nizar Vinat was murdered in their custody. So. I think they're trying to send a pretty clear message like we are the guys you got to deal with. And if you don't like that, you know, we can find someplace yeah. for you. One thing that I have to say that he's been that has been interesting to see is that over the years, just how he's turned us into a big yawn. The people have no idea who the leader of Palestine is. And and it's just and the Israelis don't care. and. He just turned us into, we went from being one of the incredible things. A liberation movement. We were a liberation movement. Arafat, you could go anywhere around the world and people knew who he was. Algeria, Black Panthers. He was welcomed by all people who were living that anti-colonial struggle. Anywhere. Anywhere he went, people knew, and he had a lot of problems. Yeah, this is I don't want to, you know, make him into. Sure, we're not, we're not. No. Yes, hundred percent. But, but this guy has made us irrelevant. That's the that's the difference. I actually remember one time I was in Sri Lanka, and somebody was asking me where you're from, and I said Palestine. They had no idea. Uh, I said Jerusalem, no, Gaza, no, and then I said Arafat. Oh, of course. Yes. <laughs> of course. Right. Today, if that if I would have that same conversation, what would I where where would we what would I say? What would you say? Like what do you Gaza? They would if they didn't know Gaza, if they don't know Jerusalem, if they don't know Palestine, if they don't know you know, all of that is he sort of made us at to a point where we're irrelevant. And it's so the opposite of who we were even 30 years ago. When we were on the verge of national extinction, because that's where we were, we were on the verge of national extinction. Arafat brought us back from that point. We could have been like any other of the of the peoples around the world who 
have who are still struggling for their self-determination. Arafat brought us back because unlike them, we were also displaced, erased, you name it. And mm-hmm. Arafat brought us back from that point. Again, I have lots of criticisms of him. This isn't a, a, a like a sure. Arafat fest, but um, <laughs> but but this guy hard to get has tickets to sent us backwards. Yes, <laughs> hard to get tickets to the Arafat fest. <laughs> this guy sent us backwards. He's really sent us to a place where we're back. Even Lars is, you'll, you'll like this, Michael. Have you ever tried to fill out an online form? Where are you from? You know, when you those pull down menus. Sure. I have no idea what to write any longer. Right. There's, there's, you know, occupy Palestinian territory. Okay. There's, um, you'll never see Palestine. You'll see state of Palestine. So we actually mm-hmm. skip a letter. We're up to S rather yeah. than P. Yeah, yeah, yeah. State of and Palestine. Then, yeah. like, it's just it's so confusing because he's turned us into, or sometimes you'll see West Bank and Gaza. Like we, we've yep. just been so thrown all over the place by this, by this leadership that doesn't have a consistent message or, a, or strategy for liberation. I got to think that's by design, right? Like on two, I'll, I'll attack it from two different angles. In, in one instance, look, Arafat is a probably a hard act to follow, right? I've gone yeah. up after like professional comedians where I was like, damn, I'm going to bomb. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> on the other side, like the occupation murders anybody who could actually be like a viable leader and so Abbas yeah. had to internalize those Zionist talking points in order to stay alive and also stay profitable and stay in a position where stay, he could stay where he is. <laughs> yeah, where he could yeah. continue to serve as the president. But that's the problem is that his goal is now to continue to serve as president rather than liberation. Oh yeah, that's it was a big problem. This, this was that, not an Abbas uh, fest either. You know what I'm saying? No, I know. I know. I know it's not. No, I'm, I the reason I'm mentioning this is because there's a certain there was a certain point in my life where I had to make a decision of whether I was going to continue to work for them or if I was going to leave. And continuing to work for them meant like I could have left my current the position I was in and gone and had something fairly lucrative. And I just couldn't, I couldn't get to the point in my head where I said, I'm comfortable doing this because the, the goal had shifted. It was no longer liberation. The goal was now survival of the Palestinian authority, because what they had done is they had equated the survival of the Palestinian authority with Palestinian liberation. And those two things are two very different. They're two very different goals. But mm-hmm. for me, I had to go through this mental process and decide, am I going to continue on this one path of seeking liberation or is it, or is survival of the Palestinian authority? Is that really the goal? And there's a lot of people who've taken that latter decision of survival of the Palestinian authority. I'm not going to mention names, but we all know who they are. And I just couldn't, I couldn't, I just couldn't, Imagine that this is what I was placed on this earth for. I think that's a great place to end. <laughs> I don't ever um, want this to end. You- I want to stay <laughs> on this <laughs> Zoom call for the rest of my life. <laughs> thank you so thank much, you. Deanna, thank for you. your time, <laughs> your stories, your perspective. Thank Insights. you so much. 
Thank you so much to all of our listeners for listening to another episode of the Palestine Pod. That has been an episode of the Palestine Pod. Go ahead and check out our website, www.palestinepod.com. Follow us on Instagram at the Palestine Pod. Send us an email at palestinepod at gmail.com and check out our Patreon, www.patreon.com slash Palestine Pod. That's been another episode. Thanks so much, folks. Have a great day. Palestine Pod. Palestine Pod.